to the choir master for the flutes, a psalm of David. Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God. For to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgression, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that our reading of this text would begin to seep into our very bones that as we seek to understand it with our minds, that it may penetrate our heart, that we might obey what you have put here in front of us, and that we may all the more celebrate the fact that Christ has redeemed us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it bears repeating that the Psalms, we can take a couple of different ways. And you've probably seen this, these different approaches in in the past, as you've studied or read or maybe even sat under sermons through the Psalms, the first approach that you could take to the Psalms is where they're completely distinct from one another. You may have seen this in sermons that you've sat under. Uh, one sermon be under Psalm 76, and the next one be Psalm 46, and one be on Psalm 5, and the next one be on Psalm 55. And you kind of go through the book of Psalm, picking whichever one you want uh, to, to do in sort of an isolated fashion. And each psalm is evaluated based on what is in only that psalm. And I want you to hear me when I say this. That's not inherently wrong. That's not a wrong approach to take to the Psalms. And maybe you've even read the Psalms that way in your private devotion time, just whichever Psalm you stumbled upon. It's absolutely fine. You can do that. But there is another way to read the Psalms, and that's with the understanding that though each individual Psalm was composed at different times, maybe, and in different places, and maybe even by different authors, they were ordered in a particular order. And while it's not necessary to read Psalm 4 to understand Psalm 5, we do understand that it's not as if the two are completely disconnected from one another. They do actually stand next to each other for a particular reason. 
And the way we're going through this, I want us to not just pay attention to the psalm that we're in, but also think about whether or not this psalm has a connection to the psalms that surround it. We are currently in the midst of Psalm Book 1 of the Psalms, which is Psalm 1 to 41. So in Book 1 of the Psalm, the main purpose of Book 1 is about the establishment of God's kingdom and how God is reigning over the world through His anointed King. Remember that and scrawl it on your brain if you have to. Book 1's main purpose, the driving theme for all 41 psalms are connected in some way to this main purpose, and it's about establishing God's kingdom and how God is reigning over the world through His anointed king, which we know is originally David, but ultimately is Jesus. And so all of these psalms are going to connect back to that main theme in book 1. And so imagine... That these psalms, particularly book 1 and book 2, that have most of David's psalms in them, it's like getting a glimpse into what it's like to be the divine king. You're getting a glimpse into the private journals, if you will, of the divine king as God has appointed him. Now hopefully you recall Psalm 2, where God sits David, or his anointed king, on his hill and he rules the world through him. And all the nations are laughing at, at, at the divine king. They're, they're scoffing at the Lord. And the Lord, uh, you know, as they make their plans, the Lord just laughs from heaven. And he knows that he's going to rule the world through his divine king, whom he sets on his holy hill in Zion. And he's going to govern the world through him. But in the Psalms, the camera shifts Whereas most of the rest of the Old Testament and New Testament, we get a look at what God is doing in history. In the Psalms, the camera shifts a little bit and we get a look into the private thoughts of that king that he sets on his hill. And what it's like to be the divine king whom God has appointed to rule the world through. You might think, well, to be the divine king, that'd be like a bed of roses, wouldn't it? God's appointed you, God set you on this hill, and he's going to rule the world through you. It's got to be a pretty posh lifestyle, doesn't it? You're God's appointed individual, and you might be tempted to think that, and you'd be wrong. In the Psalms that that follow Psalm 2, David's on the run. He's got enemies all around And in Psalm 5, which is our psalm this morning, David is again surrounded by enemies, which as it turns out for the divine king is a familiar position. And so he's constantly surrounded by enemies on all fronts. And so the king prays to the Lord for protection. And where in the end of Psalm 4, if you just in your Bible go back to the very end of Psalm 4 and look at verse 8, he says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. And so David is at the end of his day praying to God and saying, you make me dwell in safety. But then look at Psalm 5. It clearly takes place in the morning. Look at Psalm 5, verse 3. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. So it's helpful in connecting the two, Psalm 4 and Psalm 5, to note how frequently David, the divine king, through whom God is going to rule the world, is fervently 
seeking aid from the Lord morning and evening. But in this morning psalm, in this psalm that sort of takes place in the morning, David is, is seeking help from the Lord to rescue him from his enemies all around. And once again, like in Psalm 4, there's a comparison in this psalm between the actions of the wicked and the actions of the righteous. But we're not going to focus so much on the comparison like we did last week because I don't think that's the main concern of the psalm. The main focus in this psalm is on the reasons the righteous are granted divine protection. David's going to focus on the reasons why God should hear him when he prays. David is calling out to the Lord for protection, and he's focusing on the reasons why the Lord should hear him. I'm calling to you for help, and here's why you should answer me. Here's why you should pay attention to these cries of mine. So there's two parts of this prayer that David's going to go through, and in each he's going to give in each part, he's going to give two reasons why the Lord should, should hear him. And so we're going to take note of both what he's saying in his prayer and why the Lord should answer him. The first thing that he's saying in verses 1 to 7, the Lord hears the prayer of the righteous because of his exclusive and humble devotion to Yahweh alone. The Lord hears the prayer of the righteous because of his exclusive and humble devotion to Yahweh alone. I know that's a long thing to say, but this is what David is getting at in this first part. I want to help us understand that. So verses 1 and 8 both open with this direct address to the Lord in prayer. David is crying out, O Lord, O God. And in verse 1, David is asking for the Lord to hear his prayer and consider his groaning. And when you hear the word groaning there, don't just necessarily think of pain and agony as you might be tempted to think. It's not just pain and agony. This is, this is almost the kind of murmurs that you give under your breath when you walk away from a really bad situation. Man, that person's crazy. I don't know what they're thinking, right? Like you're, you're muttering that under your breath as you're leaving. That's the idea here of my groanings. As David is surrounded by these enemies and he's praying to the Lord and he's thinking to himself, this is just awful. My inmost thoughts, Lord, pay attention to the things that I'm thinking in my heart as I'm surrounded in this situation. David is groaning in, in this way to the Lord during the midst of a stressful situation. And it's in this first section that he's going to give two reasons why the Lord should hear his prayer. And the first reason is this. The righteous person only seeks help from the Lord. That's the reason you should hear my prayer. is because as a righteous person, I am only seeking help from you. You're the only person I'm concerned with. That's what he says there in verse 2. Look at verse 2. He says, For to you do I pray. Now, as you look at the rest of the psalm, the implication by him saying that, for to you alone do I pray, or to you do I pray, is that I am only praying to you. I'm not praying to anyone else. He's praying only to the Lord. In other words, the rest of his enemies that are surrounding him, they may be praying to Yahweh too, but they're not only praying to, to Yahweh. They're not praying exclusively to Yahweh. In other words, they're hedging their bets with all the many gods that are out there. Now, mind you, David's enemies were not only Gentiles. David's enemies were not only Amalekites. David's enemies came from within the Jewish people quite often. You'll remember Saul, certainly, 
You'll remember Absalom. We talked about him a couple of weeks ago. You remember many of the, the, Absalom had won the hearts of many of the Israeli men, the, the Hebrew men, had turned their hearts against David. So David's enemies often were inside his own camp. And what do we see throughout the Old Testament except that the Jews were often persuaded away from following the Lord and into idolatry. And what we mean by idolatry is not simply the worshiping of little dolls or little wooden statues on your mantle. Idolatry is simply finding security in someone other than God. Right? The Jewish people were supposed to let, this, let the land rest on the seventh year. They were supposed to rest on the seventh day. Every seven sevens, they were supposed to let the land rest for seven years. And, they, and this was all to show that they were trusting in the Lord. But they didn't. Why? Because their hearts were idol, idol worshipers. Their hearts were pursuing idolatry. And so, basically, idolatry is just finding you security in any, anyone other than God. And David is saying, to you only... I have found you sufficient. I don't find anyone else sufficient. No other God for me is sufficient. Only the Lord is sufficient for me. The divine king needs no other provision other than that from God himself. Evidence of his dedication is there in verse 3. If you look at verse 3, what does he do? He rises early in the morning and he commits his day to the Lord's direction and protection. Every single day, early in the morning, he rises, he commits himself to the Lord's direction and protection. Now I want you to think about this for just a minute. This is where the connection to Psalm 4 comes in handy. As I mentioned, Psalm 4 ends with the divine king seeking the Lord's favor so that he might have rest in the evening. And here the divine king is opening his morning and the first thing that he's doing is confessing his dependence on the Lord for his protection. And so after seeking the Lord, presumably the through prayer and sacrifice he tells the lord at the end of verse three look there he says then i what does i do what do i do i watch at the end of verse three i watch he awaits an answer essentially from the lord his expectation is not only that he's going to get up and he's going to pray to the lord but that that then he's going to anticipate the lord actually hearing his prayer and answering and that the day's provision is going to be specifically in answer to the prayers that he gave early in the morning. You're beginning to see how David, the king that God has placed on the throne, the divine king, how David anticipates God ruling through him. His day revolves around communication with Yahweh. His day revolves around the provision that only God can provide. And so he sees his life as in continual need for the Lord's help. That is, by the way, the very definition of biblical humility. That's it right there. What you're seeing right there is the definition of biblical humility. We know that's on his mind because then in the end, in the end, in verse four, and sorry, in verse eleven, he says, "This is what it means to take refuge in the Lord. Blessed is the one who takes refuge in the Lord." That's what the divine king is doing. That is biblical humility. He's taking refuge in the Lord. And how? His entire day revolves around what the Lord provides for him. His entire day revolves around seeking the Lord's will for his life. 
His entire day is based on his dependence on the Lord. That is the definition of biblical humility. The whole day is revolving around the Lord's help. Now that's important because of reason number two as to why the Lord should answer his prayer. This one's hard. Just going just gonna to warn you. Reason number two why the Lord should answer him. God hates the proud and loves the righteous. David has just shown you biblical humility. And now he's telling you God hates the proud and loves the righteous. Look at verse 4. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy all who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Reason 2. God hates the proud and loves the righteous. If any verse in this psalm is going to make you a little nervous... It's verse 5. I think. If anyone is going to make you nervous, it's going to be verse 5. It seems harsh, doesn't it? It seems like, is that really what it means? That can't be what it means. Surely that's not what it means. And then you might try to explain that verse away or try to push away from it or try to distance that verse from God himself. No, God hates the evildoer. No, surely not. And then you give maybe some poor interpretation of it or perhaps chalk it up to a bad translation. Maybe it's a translational problem. What's the translation of that word hate? Surely he doesn't, he doesn't hate the evildoer. The, the person hates the person. Well, if you go back to the Hebrew and you translate it directly... Translation of that, evildoer. Are you ready for this? One who does evil. It's complex, I know. Mind-blowing, I'm sure. But it's amazing that we try to push away from that when God hates the one who does evil. We want to push away from that, but we'll fly right past the first half of verse 5. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. See, when I, when I see the evildoer there, that, I feel like that gives me some wiggle room. KJV um, says, workers of iniquity. And I can probably sit, think to myself, well, I don't do evil. I don't work iniquity. That's them over there. I'm not that guy. That's a, that's a particular class of evil person. That's not me. I'm, I'm far from that. That's, that's some really wicked and twisted person like maybe Hitler or Mussolini. We'll put them in that category. Maybe some others that ca- classify as that. But, but not me at all. But then what does he say before that? The boastful, the proud, shall not stand before the Lord. The boastful and proud shall not stand before the Lord. They can't enter into His presence through prayer. Meaning he doesn't hear their prayers. He doesn't entertain their sacrifice at all. They also will not stand in his sight. Meaning that one day they're going to stand before him on judgment day. And he's going to cut them down. The boastful, the proud. Well, who are the boastful? Well, in the previous part, he explains what biblical humility looks like, right? Your day revolving around the Lord's direction of your life. So then, who are the boastful? If the humble are the ones whose entire day revolves around constant communication with the Lord and obedience to His will, then the second half of the verse in verse 5 is just restating what the first half has already told me. 
Me. I'm the boastful. I think I got an amen. I'm the boastful one in the second half of that verse. I'm the proud. I'm the one on this end of it. I'd like to think that I'm the humble person. I'd like to think that I'm there with David and praying against the enemies of the divine king, against the enemies of the Lord, and I want to see them as my enemies. I do my best as I read through the Psalms to pretend he's not talking about me. But am I here like the divine king? Seeking the blessing and counsel of the Lord morning, noon, and night? Or many days is my day revolved around seeking my own way by my own wisdom and my own counsel? Well, that's the very definition of pride. If the other was the definition of humility, that's the very definition of pride. And if I'm the boastful and proud person, then I'm right there in verse 5. I'm the aim of what he's talking about, who he's talking about. It greatly benefit us. As we read our Bibles, if we would see ourselves as the scoundrel rather than the helpless victim. It would greatly benefit you in your reading of the Bible to see yourself as the scoundrel instead of the helpless victim. The beneficiaries of God's loving kindness are the divine king and anyone who falls under his rule. I want you to remember that. The beneficiaries of God's loving kindness are the divine king and anyone who falls under his rule. So those who submit to his rule are actually submitting to the law of God. And since the law, of the, the, since the law that the, the divine king is instituting is the law of God, if you're submitting to the divine king, you're submitting to God himself. However, the objects of God's wrath, the ones who delight in wickedness in verse 4, the boastful and evildoers in verse 5, the lying, bloodthirsty, and deceitful there in verse 6, all of those who fall outside the rule of God and the divine king because they reject entirely submission to God's law. They reject entirely revolving their day, too, around the Lord's direction. So remember, the king, David, is to rule the people in accordance with God's law. So falling out from under the rule of the divine king is falling outside of the rule of God himself, which is why down at the very end of the psalm, David is going to say, they haven't rejected me, they've rejected you. That's why you should cast them out. They rejected you. But David, in verse 7, enters into... The Lord's house, he bows down and he worships what? He, what does he say? In fear, in awe, in reverence. Why? Because of God's steadfast love toward him. What David understands, it's often hard for us to wrap our minds around, is, and what he's saying in this prayer is that he would be in the same position as the enemies were it not for God's love toward him. Were it not that God had determined to set his love upon David, David would be in the same position. Think about it. If David, through the prophet Samuel, had not called David out of Jesse's house, the least among his brothers, would David have a right to the throne? 
would David even be the divine king? He wouldn't. He wouldn't at all. But God had set his love on him in the same way that he allowed him to bring prayer and sacrifice to him. And therefore, the Lord hears his prayer because the Lord hears the prayer of the righteous because of his exclusive and humble devotion to Yahweh alone. Second big thing that I want you to see here in verses 8 to 12, the Lord hears the prayer of the righteous person because on the righteous, his favor rests. Because on the righteous, his favor rests. So we have this Second part to the prayer where David asks the Lord to lead him. The first time it was to give ear to his words. And the second time it's now lead me. Not only hear my prayer, but actually lead me, direct me through life. David's petition here to the Lord is that here in the midst of being surrounded by this people, that, that, that is simply that the Lord would keep him from becoming like them. So around David are surrounded by enemies and counsel and wicked people. And David's prayer is, Lord, please lead me in the way that doesn't end with me being like them. I don't want to become like that. He's, he wants to be led in, uh, in righteousness, he says. That, he would be, that, he, that the Lord would make the Lord's way straight before him. He wants guidance so that he doesn't become like the wicked person. Now in the second part, he's, he's going to give two more reasons, reasons three and four in this psalm, that the Lord should answer him. And the, the third reason here is because those against the Lord are incapable of speaking truth. The reason the Lord should answer his prayer is because all of those who are against you are incapable of speaking truth. Look at verse 9. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Now David has just asked for the Lord to lead him and to make his way straight before him. So essentially, he's, what, he, what he's asking the Lord for is counsel and direction. Why? Because he can't trust the counsel and the direction of anyone around him. He can't trust the counsel and direction of anyone around him. Look, look at how he describes um, them having no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. They're bent on destruction. Their throat is an open grave. Now these seem like really ruthless individuals. These seem like people that want to you know, just stab you with a knife. These are described as really vile people. But the last line of verse 9 tips you off to what David is talking about here. Look at what he says. They flatter with their tongue. These aren't murderers. They're not convicted felons that he's talking about. He's talking about flatterers. People that presumably tell him what he wants to hear. These are the enemies of David. These are the vicious and vile people that he's talking about, flatterers. He's describing those he's surrounded by who, who aren't using their hands to kill. They're using their tongues. Presumably their speech, maybe to David, is bent on just telling David what, he, what they think he wants to hear. Maybe it's so that they'll be promoted. They'll look good in the eyes of the king, if they can just maybe tell him what he wants to hear. Maybe they want to promote their own name. But what does that actually lead David to do? To believe it. You're great, David. The decisions you're making are awesome. 
But David calls these people those who speak lies and are deceitful in verse 6. These people's throat is an open grave. He also calls them bloodthirsty in verse 6. They're evildoers. They're boastful. They seek after their own way, and they're leading him in that direction too. Their throats are open graves. They are evildoers. But this is the point that he's making. Those that are against the Lord cannot speak the truth. Those who are against the Lord cannot speak the truth. David is desiring the Lord's way to be made clear. God's counsel to be laid out in front of him that he may walk in step with the Lord's direction. And they would seek instead to direct him a different way. So David is very much thinking back to Psalm 1. You remember Psalm 1, the two ways that are divided. There's the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. And the way of the person that has surrounded him is, sounds like it's righteousness. It sounds like it's good, but it's mere flattery. And it actually takes you down the way, the path of wickedness. And so he sees their counsel of those around him as leading him the opposite direction because they're not concerned with the Lord's way at all. All they can potentially do is lie to me. Even if they don't know it, they seek only after death. Because those who are against the Lord can only serve themselves. That's all they can do. They can't serve the Lord. They're against the Lord. So the only thing they can do is serve themselves. And so David prays for them to receive justice in verse 10. This is what we often refer to as an imprecation or a prayer of cursing. There's imprecatory psalms that we'll get to eventually later on in the book of Psalms where the entire prayer is all a prayer of imprecation, a cursing on someone else. But here it's just one verse. He prays that they would fall by their own counsel. That they would fall on the sword, essentially. Why? Not because, he says, not because they're seeking to lead David astray, but because their rebellion is actually against God Himself. It's not God's name they're seeking to promote. It's their own. But not so the righteous. See, for those who fall under the rule of God and therefore submit to the divine king, They receive, he says in verse 11, divine protection. And he tells them, let let those who receive that kind of protection from the Lord sing out for joy. Let them celebrate because of what the Lord has done. Here again, we see the same things that we saw, some of the same things that we saw last week. Remember Psalm 4, verse 7. You can look back there if if you don't remember it by heart. He says, you have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. So here, it's, it's, it's all the ones who, whose refuge is in the Lord are rejoicing in the protection that the Lord alone can provide for them. The point is that our service, if it is truly in humble submission to Him, is joyous. Not only because He put that joy in our heart as Psalm 4 says, but then also because our joy is found in Him alone. The people of God should be characterized, as as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. 
sorrowful because we look around the world around us and we see our own sin. We see the sin of the world around us. We see that everything in the course of this world is leading towards death. And so it produces a kind of sorrow in our life that is often unexplained. But we alone can see that that sorrow ends in joy. And so for the Christian, they're sorrowful as we walk through this life, but the joyful part is looking onto the horizon, knowing that it will not always be this way. So the Christian is characterized by a joy that God has actually put in the Christian's heart. And as we look out on the horizon, we know that the sorrow will not always last. But then we get to the fourth reason that the Lord should answer him. It's in verse 12. It's because his favor rests on the righteous. Lord, you should answer my prayer because your favor rests on the righteous. Look at verse 12. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as a shield. This is the reason for the rejoicing of the righteous person. Because the divine protection that he receives basically gives him immunity from prosecution. That he's going to stand before the throne one day and and in Christ be... because the Lord has, has shielded him, be immune from, divi- uh, from prosecution. So he's going to receive divine protection. He's receiving blessing and honor. So the opposite of hate in verse 5 is favor then in verse 12. The righteous person is going to receive the favor of the Lord. So the two big points that we've seen The Lord hears the prayer of the righteous because of His exclusive and humble devotion to Yahweh alone. Second, the Lord hears the prayer of the righteous because on the righteous His favor rests. The only problem is you and I are not the righteous person. That's the problem. Paul says in Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. And then, immediately following that verse in Romans 3.10, is 3.11. You know what happens in 3.11 and following? Paul goes on a string of quotes from the Psalms that illustrate that no one, Jew or Gentile, is righteous. He's proving to his audience in Rome. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew, and it doesn't matter if you're a Gentile. There's not one righteous. No, not one. And I bet you'll never guess what Psalm Paul quotes in verse 13 of Romans 3. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. And of course, you'll probably remember what point Paul makes Just a few verses later in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, the end of 22 and 23 says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, what that means is we need to read Psalm 5 and not put ourselves on David's team. Now, I told you that about halfway through the psalm, and I bet as we, got through, as we got through the second half, my guess is that in your mind, you were still putting yourself in the place of David. 
You were still thinking of yourself as the righteous person and the one whom the Lord shields and the Lord protects. And you probably thought where I was going with this sermon is going, therefore, guys, you can rest in the Lord's protection. Not yet. Not until first we go back through Psalm 5 and instead of reading yourself in David's place as the righteous person who's receiving the protection from the Lord, that you put yourself in the place of the enemy who's receiving the prayer of imprecation and cursing. Till you put yourself in the place of the boastful person because that's exactly where Paul is putting you in Romans 3. You're not David. You're not David. You're the enemy. You're the one David's praying against. You're the one who's there's no truth in your mouth. You're the one who's double-tongued. You're the one who's boastful and proud. You're the one whose throat is an open grave. Now, once you see yourself in that light, then come back to Romans chapter 3. Start in verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace. As a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Remember, the beneficiaries of God, of God's loving kindness, are the divine King and anyone who falls under his rule. The divine king is originally David, but ultimately Jesus. So what does that mean? It means that the only reason you would ever be considered a beneficiary of God's favor, the only reason even David would be a beneficiary of God's favor, is because God sovereignly chose to favor us through the blood of Christ. Without the blood of Christ, David is praying against himself here. Let that cook your noodle for a little while. Every blessing you have from God is due solely to your inclusion in Christ. All of your prayers are heard not based on your own merits before Him. Not based on what you've done. Not based on how good or how bad you are. Are your prayers heard or not heard? But solely because of what Jesus has done for you. If your prayers were heard because of how good your day was, well, today... I I did really well in obeying the Lord, and so he hears me. But yesterday, man, I 
went back to the same sins that I continue to go back to over and over again. And so I feel embarrassed to come before the Lord and hear his prayer. If there was no blood of Christ, that would be true. In fact, if there was no blood of Christ, you wouldn't be able to pray once. It's enough to separate you. But under the rule of the divine king, Christ, prayers are always heard. Because you're his children. It's not based on your own merits. And as fearful as this psalm is for the wicked person, hated by God, judged, that's you apart from Christ. He's the divine king here. He's the one who saved. And all who don't fall under his rule are his enemy. So what does this then mean for you, for me? What do we do with this? How do we sit on Psalm 5? And how do we really think about it as applying to our own life? Well, your divine protection, first of all, does not come from your own power, but from Christ. He lived the righteous life. My sin is more evidence then of the fact that I need Him. But second, stop living in this guilt-ridden life of Christianity. Christianity is not a life of being guilt-ridden for all the things that you've either done or haven't done. It's not yours to sit back in the evening and keep tally of all the good things you did or all the bad things that you did, as if in some way they merit you a better position and a better standing with the Lord. Presumably, you are the son or daughter of someone. Can you imagine for one moment that anything that you could do could ever take you out from under being their son or daughter? Would that ever happen in a world? As bad as my children could possibly be, there's nothing that would remove them from being my son or daughter. Can you imagine now that the metaphor that God chose to communicate his love for you is that you are a son or daughter? And that nothing can separate you from that love. So it doesn't do us good to live in this life of guilt-ridden Christianity where instead we can live in humble confidence of the protection he provides. In fact, Paul boasts in Christ. Perhaps maybe a little like that cocky four foot ten sixth grader who has a much bigger friend, who has all the confidence in the world, and now doesn't live and rise or fall on mistakes or sins or things that I do or don't do, but lives to please the Father that I serve because He loves me and He gave His Son for me. So we can live in sobriety understanding what sin has done to you. You can live fully sober understanding this is what sin has done to me. Let's put it in real terms. This is what sin has done to me. But we can live in joy understanding what Christ's work has done for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, that you would give us humble confidence 
and what you have done for us. No more would we believe the lies of Satan that say, we are your enemy, that you hate us, but that we would rest in the assurance that you provide in Christ. We know that just that doubting our own salvation, that counting all the things that we've done or haven't done, really amounts to a distrust of Christ. It's a failure to believe in the gospel. May we trust in the fact that instead we receive a shield of protection because you have chosen to set your favor on us through Christ. What a joy that is. What a joy it is to live in that. We pray that we would and that we would believe it in Jesus' name. Amen.